0: Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy.
1: Canis Albinas, Makalua,
2: the main team,
3: Mega Bears fan.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Polycast number 377. I am a co-host, Canis Albanus, and I am joined with our regulars, Makalua.
0: My hockey team won 7-0 to zero last night, but I can't be exactly proud of that because they could have just stopped killing them while they were dead.
1: The and team. In with the new, out with the old
2: military equipment.
3: And Mega Bears fans. Sticking with sports, the Bears did in fact embarrass themselves on national television in the playoffs.
0: <laughs> Again,
3: They almost won. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> not as much as Nashville got embarrassed by the Dallas Stars last night.
1: Is it as big as an embarrassment as what happened with the Falcons at the Super Bowl?
0: No, Ooh. no, that was still <laughs> that, Ooh, <laughs>
2: That was actually a close game, but the way it was a close game was what made that bad. It was
3: not a close <laughs> game at halftime. That was the problem. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that went from close to nope. Really fast.
3: Oh, uh, yeah, that one was bad. That was bad.
1: It was quite possibly the funniest thing that the, happened to the internet that week, though. <laughs>
2: We've got new civilizations. And one of them is Nam! So uh, Vietnam is interesting. You get good movement through the jungle. You get Stampy in a new form. And you get district limitations. But they're better when you can place them. And also you get a replacement of the best district in the game. So pretty good. Pretty good.
3: Limitations on district placement seems to be a running theme in this uh, New Frontiers DLC pass. Well, yeah, you're, you're on the frontier after all.
1: Yeah, that does make sense.
3: Yeah, changing the way that people or players settle their cities and develop them seems to have been a large focus of this particular set of DLC.
0: Yeah, they're trying to shake up our normal, just plop this here, plop that there. Now you got to think just a little harder.
3: Yeah, get people out of their comfort zones.
0: Yeah.
1: So the specific reading for these events, or for these abilities, is land specialty districts can only be built on woods, rainforests, or marshes. And they have little icons next to them, which I assume means they get bonuses based on which one of those they're placed on. And they don't remove those features. Buildings within those districts receive extra bonuses. And you can plant woods at medieval fairs.
3: Now, can you build any of the districts on any of the features? Or was it like you have to build a campus on rainforest and you have to build a holy site on forest or something like that?
1: That is not clear to me.
0: Yeah, I don't think we know that yet. But I'm just sitting here thinking about a campus buried deep into rainforest and going, hmm.
2: That's already one so shtick when it comes to campuses.
0: Yeah, but also not taking... Uh, with any of the districts not taking what's underneath them, so you've still got whatever bonus is there, whether that's the little bit of extra production or a little bit of extra food or what have you, which will add up.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Also, the ability to uh, plant forests is mm-hmm.
3: uh, interesting.
0: It's a lot earlier.
3: Yeah. It is worth I'm- noting that you cannot re-chop the forest and get yield from it again, so uh, anybody who's thinking that... Uh, that's currently, well, at least that's currently the case with the planting woods feature that's available late in the game, so I'm assuming it's also with Vietnam.
1: The question is, when you plant a woods in Medieval Fairs era, does that mean it becomes an old growth forest by the time conservation rolls around?
3: Or is it still a a second growth forest? I would have to assume it's second growth, because yeah, otherwise you'd just be planting them and then chopping them down and rushing stuff left and right. I mean, unless it does take, like, several eras for it to be considered, is is there any point in the game where second growth becomes old growth, like, already? Because I wasn't aware of that if that was the case.
1: I don't think so. I think... I don't think the, 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 the the time that you realize that it's a second growth forest or an old growth forest means that there's not enough time left for it to grow all the way, and under normal circumstances you can't start you can't plant woods after the beginning of the game so
3: yeah i guess we won't know until it actually comes out but i would have to assume that uh you cannot do that and i also would have to assume that you can put any district on any of the features because otherwise like depending on the map you just wouldn't be able to place certain districts and that would suck
1: yeah
3: right like imagine starting out in the like tundra where you're as far away from rainforest as possible and you can just never place a campus
1: for the unique unit it is a crossbow i could not find what the name of this crossbow is because it's not written anywhere in the first few pages of bread and i only got to page 5 so all i know is it's a crossbow replacement about the same strength it has 3 moves and it can move after attacking And it has plus one sight, costs a little more. Also, you're on the back of an elephant, which is the stampy thing.
3: So it's like the Sabum Kibitum from uh, Babylon, but on an elephant and with a crossbow.
0: And being able to move after attacking.
3: Oh, yes, that too. That's a really good ability when units have it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, especially with three moves. Yeah.
3: And, uh, I think, like, just their, uh, leader or civ ability is like not being slowed down by uh forests and rainforest right
1: i don't know if that's true i know that it's you get a plus one movement if you're starting the turn
2: on those terrains oh, okay from the video they they move through the, the forests and rainforest really quickly yeah, I would imagine they're not taking penalties in addition to getting the movement speed buffs.
3: Yeah, I don't remember if specifically, own... but the the video definitely made it look like there was some kind of movement bonus in uh, forests and and woods.
1: If you own the territory, the bonus is doubled. Also, if you are in rainforest, woods, and marsh, you get a plus five um, combat strength. So, if which is also doubled doubled in owned
3: territory. So if the elephant crossbow starts in Vietnamese territory on, uh, woods tiles, it has five movement? Yes. That is a very fast (laughs) elephant.
0: (laughs) That's going to be a hell of a surprise attack, too.
3: Yeah.
1: Get out of the way! (laughs) Add Add a great general to that, and it's plus six, and it's a six
3: movement. Oh yeah, true.
0: I don't have any units near your borders. Oops! Wait, my units are are in your borders. uh
3: uh-huh. Shoot, they're at your capital.
0: Oops! Oops! Where'd your capital go?
3: And I assume it's uh, still range two on its attack. I think so. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, because it's already powerful enough without giving it more range. Well, I, I was thinking it's tight,
3: though. I was thinking since it can move faster, maybe they made it a range one, so you move in, attack at range one, and then move out.
1: That might have been a better idea for a balance,
3: but who cares about balance? Hey, gotta sell these things somehow.
0: Sometimes it's just fun to have fun.
1: The leader is... Who is the leader this time? We haven't mentioned her name yet. Oh, I forget her
2: name.
0: Somebody's linked it as Lady Trio? Trio. I'm not sure how to pronounce Vietnamese. Uh, I, talking
1: I can usually get languages, but... Vietnamese is further beyond my capability.
0: Yeah, uh, <clears throat> not named it quoted it that she's from the Three Kingdoms period. So I was talking about some other stuff in there, but that's where she's from. But there was something about the storm part of it that was in there that there was a battle where similar to the one I think that was with Japan where their fleet got smashed, except this case it was something to do with a war in Vietnam. Uh, it was a Chinese fleet that got smashed, I think. It
1: was trying to attack Vietnam. Oh, We'll talk about the Chinese in just a minute. A unique unit. I finally found it. Voixien. And then the unique district, which we were talking about earlier, the Thanh. It is a replacement encampment that gives plus two culture per adjacent district. And it does not count as a specialty district. So it doesn't require population to build, and you can build it anywhere.
3: I think Phil approves.
0: Yeah, because you'll be able to, you could put down an encampment anytime you want to, and then you just, like, build all your other districts around it in the appropriate kind of terrains. Like, you can have that campus and holy sites out in the rainforest or something like that with the encampment right adjacent to it. And You might even, if there was a square on the other side, you might even be able to squeeze an industrial zone next to it later, and, or your culturals like your theater square so nine dragon
1: river delta is the um district thing all specialty districts can only be built on rainforest martian woods they receive the following yields for every building based on the features plus one culture for woods plus one science for rainforest and plus one production for marsh woods can be planted with the medieval fairs civic
3: okay that was where i got the idea that the, each district was feature-specific because the yields, there were bonus yields that were feature-specific. or uh, yeah, feature specific. That was my confusion.
1: Also, the question. Voixian elephants are stronger when defending,
3: whatever that means. Hmm. Uh, I guess either a bonus on defense or higher melee combat strength than a regular crossbow? Probably. Vietnamese lady
1: is named Batrio. Batreo. It's one of those letters that has uh, an upside-down U on top of the E and a dot underneath it. So I have no idea what that means based on my American education.
3: Yeah, we don't even know what those accent marks are called, let alone how to pronounce them.
0: <laughs> well. We get a lot of European culture and not much Asian culture when we're in school.
1: Hey, It's people not who- so much that we don't get Asian culture, it's that we don't get Southeast Asian culture.
0: Because oh, yeah. we get we, we get can't... quite a
1: bit of Japanese stuff.
0: Yeah, and China, but there's a Southeast Asia, What, despite the fact that we talk about the spice trade and things. Part well, of
1: it has to do with the fact that Vietnam was kind of a taboo subject for a while in our culture.
3: Well, and coming out of the uh, United States schooling system, you know, we still have a lot of people struggling with I before E except after C, so.
1: <laughs>
3: That's an English me.
1: thing, though. English <clears> is just hard.
3: Well, right, but the point is we can't even get our own dang language right, so uh, let alone yes. <laughs> ones from <laughs> around the world. Yes.
2: I just want to say that this, although they were emphasizing other things, it seems like it was very well constructed for military, and not just defensive military.
0: Uh, yeah, you can kind of go in and squish people really easily.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've got early unique units, easily attainable, better than average encampments. And moving through some of the most annoying terrain for units early on before like roads are a thing and all that. So like this is a a setup that'll let you fight well all game. Now they're not like top tier. Like running through everyone with Macedonia or whatever, but they are a good military save too.
3: Well, and it's a. It seems like it's a very flexible sieve as well, because the fact that the encampment unique encampment district does not cost a population means that you don't have to choose between getting out that encampment or getting out, you know, another uh, commercial hub for a trade route. You know, you can do both. There's like no opportunity cost other than just the time it takes to build the thing. And as if I recall correctly, they're dirt cheap too. Like they're like half the cost of a regular district or something.
2: I think yeah, so you're going to have the generals. Districts are that way. Well, I think they made have the sp- generals, too.
3: Yeah, I think they made a special point, though, in this video that, like, the Vietnamese encampment district is, like, even cheaper than a normal, unique district. Maybe I, I misunderstood. So, yeah, you get to do military and also do whatever else you want to do. And get those out really early.
0: And if your military stuff grinds to halt and you have to go into the later game, you've already got so many districts that are set up to start you on the snowball roll with both culture and science, so...
1: So, are we ready to move on to China?
0: Sort of China? Kind of China? Kublai Khan? It, it, Mongol China? Kublai Khan? Which is which was as corrected in us talking beforehand. No, no, no. It's Genghis that set up the postal service to China, not Kublai. But... From what we can no,
1: see, uh, K- Kublai Khan did set up the, the oh. post office in China, but Genghis started the post offices everywhere else. Okay. So Kublai Khan oh. did add post offices in China because he was the one who conquered a lot of China. So.
0: Slightly backwards. Sorry, I hadn't had my coffee yet. Really? Well, at that point when we were talking about that, I had it now, ah. Yay, coffee. But for, for, From what I can see, very popular pick from everybody. Everybody was expecting if we, you know, of, of Civs, we have had two, more more than one leader before in previous <coughs> Civ games. This is one of the ones that we've seen before and everybody's kind of like, could we, could we? But the thing is, we don't have, other than we know, he's going to be, I think, what do we know? He's going to be great with some trade routes and things like that. And I don't think there was much else we saw in those initial videos. And they haven't done the first look yet.
3: Yeah, we expect to see that uh, this coming week.
0: After we record, as usual.
1: Hey, we got two-thirds of the stuff already.
3: Can't (laughs) complain about that.
0: Oh, Not even just a little bit.
1: Well, I guess we can, but...
3: (laughs) But yeah, he's another uh, leader who gets to be leader of two different civs. So, that's always fun and interesting, seeing how the leader... Uh, plays differently with the different civs and their unique powers and units. Let's see, what was China's... uh, China's uh, unique ability was the wonder-building one, or was it... I think that's quite Shi Huang.
1: I think his ability is he gets extra Eureka percentage.
3: Okay, so China's ability was the Eureka one?
1: I think so, yes. Okay. The one where you get 10% more... Science per Eureka.
3: And what was the Mongol civilization's ability in Civ Six?
1: That's a good question.
3: I want to say it had something to do with uh horse or mounted units. I'm looking it up. But it wasn't the double unit, because that <clears throat> was a Scythia thing.
1: Yeah. Civ ability, or two, send a trading route immediate send a trade route. Sending a trade route immediately upon creating a trading post, immediately creates a trading post in the destination city instead of when the trade route is completed. Gain an extra level of diplomatic visibility with civilizations that have a Mongolian trading post. Plus six combat units for every, for all units for each level of diplomatic visibility Mongolia has over the other civilization instead of the
3: usual plus three. Okay, so and, Mongolia already had the trade route bonus, so I guess Kublas going to make uh, it better? W-
0: yeah, because it's quoted, from the, I think from the video, is trade route, Eureka, and inspiration boost. So instead of, I, I guess instead of getting the trading post, we're going to get where, <clears throat> we're going to get the Eureka? Sp- I, I'm, well, it
3: sounds like it would be in addition to getting the trading post, because that's a okay. Mongolian ability, I mean, so then Kubla's leader ability would stack on top of that. Or maybe what they meant was you get a tr- the trade route bonus from Mongolia, you get a Eureka bonus from China, and then you maybe get an inspiration bonus from Kublai Khan, so maybe he's a culture-oriented leader? Hmm.
0: Find out Tuesday how much of this we're wrong about.
3: <laughs> yeah, we're all just <laughs> pulling stuff out of our butts here, we have no clue. It'd
2: be a little odd to emphasize culture with Kublai Khan. Oh,
0: Zandenho like, in here that's in the thread. Top thing was speculating that the bonus is it gets a free recur inspiration when sending a trade route to each civilization for the first time. Possibly, but there's only so many civs in the game. I also wonder if it's... Could be per city? That would be a little too much, though, wouldn't it?
2: That'd be crazy. If it was per city, it would be ridiculously strong. Yeah, that would be strong. a lot
0: of whack.
3: Or it could be, like, each time you complete a, uh, uh, what is it, the trade post... Uh, thing, mm. in which case yeah, like, that would work really well with playing him as the Mongolian leader, because you'd get those faster.
0: Yeah, that's this direction people are going, I think it's the first time in the Civ, and maybe it's when you not when you do the route initially, but when you get that trading post, and whether you have to wait with Kublai, whether you have to wait until that's completed, like you've completed the entire trade route first. It's also pointed out from a screenshot, they were getting extra faith, even though they didn't have a holy site anywhere.
3: Hmm. That could come from trade routes too.
0: Yeah. Or from.
1: You? Yeah. Or from the. Wasn't there a pantheon that gives faith per. Uh, pastures.
3: Uh, I Ooh. remember there being one that gave culture for pastures, unless they buffed okay. it to also give faith. I remember. Uh, sometime last year they did do. Uh. Uh, rebalancing for a lot of pantheons, including, I think, adding faith to some that had previously only given other yields. So maybe the pasture one now is culture and faith. It's been a I while since it's I've used both.
1: it. It's hard to be sure, though. I kind of find it hilarious that China has a second leader that's actually the conqueror of China rather than one of the <laughs> Chinese leaders.
0: It is kind of funny wonder how that's going to sell in China.
1: I mean, I really don't care. But, I don't know. It seems like an odd choice if you're trying to go for the Chinese market. Then again, maybe they don't consider him to be a conqueror. I don't know.
3: Well, I mean, but that's true. Like, you can argue that Julius Caesar, being the leader of Rome, is a conqueror of Rome. So, eh. I mean, it is a different thing, but...
1: But he was Roman, though, to start with. Yeah, true. That was a civil war as opposed to a conquering power from somebody else. True. I think Keasant, it's uh... more like it's more like Alexander being the leader of Greece is kind of weird because he conquered Greece.
3: Yeah. And I feel like India has also had leaders like that in past civilization games where it was actually like a Muslim conqueror of India or something like that and not actually an Indian I could be wrong about that, though, misremembering.
2: No, there's never been a Muslim conqueror of India to my own knowledge. Or maybe it was just a leader who converted. They had Ashoka, sort of like that, yeah. but...
3: That's probably who I'm thinking of then, and just getting the history wrong. This
2: is why we need Mughals, by the way.
3: Because <laughs> then... The... <laughs>
0: Isn't EU4...
2: Is then there would not be a Mughal ruler leading India. He could properly lead the
3: Mughals. Oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking of, yeah. But uh, Siv has never put a Mughal leader in India, to my knowledge. Oh, I thought they did at one point.
2: No, they had the Mughal fort as, like, a unique... Building. Building but into five, but... Which, again, is a little awkward. Hmm. But you can at least, like, say, okay, well, I mean, it, it is Gandhi leading it, the Mughal forts are probably still there, question mark, <laughs> but it's a little odd for Gandhi to be building Mughal forts, so whatever.
0: <laughs> we don't play this game for historical accuracy.
2: That yeah, but I mean, you don't like, <sighs> <sighs> that's like the USA having, like, Native American stuff, it, <laughs> like, come on now. <laughs> we're not going for historical like we're going for like a nod to the actual civilizations, which have the stuff.
0: <coughs> what, you mean Teddy Roosevelt can't build totem poles for a cultural thing?
2: I mean, I, I wouldn't tell him no to his face, but it would be <laughs> a little strange.
3: That's right, the man did survive getting shot and then finished a speech before going to the hospital. Yeah. Alright, so yes, so in addition to getting new leader for China we are also getting a new game mode which is a return but in a different way of the uh, corporations uh, game mode So, um The way I understood that this works is you build, like, special improvements over certain luxury resources, and then you get, like, extra bonuses from them, or you convert them into some kind of manufactured good that you can then sell or trade, something like that. Am I getting that right?
0: Yeah, it looks like it was almost a a workshop type of place, like a specialty workshop, like, only for refining sugar workshop or something like that. And then once you got a Monopoly...
3: Yeah, and the big point was that you actually get, like, additive bonuses for having more of a specific luxury instead of just getting two. So you have one for you and one to sell. You know, you actually want to get, explore and expand to get more of the same luxuries that you already have. And then eventually if you have a monopoly on them, uh, do you get some kind of, like, actual game bonus for having a monopoly? Or is it just the fact that you get to sell them? I don't know.
1: You get bonuses for it, yeah. So let's see if we can if we can figure out, based on this collection of screenshots in thread, figure out how this is put together. So you get two... If you have two of one resource, you can build an industry improvement on top of... which is a builder improvement. And this gives a specific yield based on what the actual thing is. So for diamond industry it looks like plus 25% gold in the host city and later on you can build the corporation improvement with a great merchant which lets you name your corporation and when you create your corporation create a project in the city that lets you create a great work called a product Product, yes, a product, and those those products go into stock exchanges through the Great Works menu or
3: harbors. Have...
1: Or harbors, do they?
3: I think they yeah, said yeah. or harbors. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably, seaports. one of the the buildings in the harbor, not just the harbor district.
1: Looks like seaports.
3: Yeah, or shipyards.
1: And the one they showed the the. Um, example of here is a coffee product, and it gives plus 20% culture use in the city. And you, once you get a certain percentage control of the market, i.e. control this many sources, you get Monopoly. Monopoly gives gold based on the percentage control and trading partner plus grants tourism bonus.
3: So I like that uh, this does not sound like it's basically just a reskin of the religion mechanic, uh, as was the case, I think, with the corporations in Civ 4
0: Yeah, this is <clears throat> this is something different because you're having to corral. You know, you're going to have to move the great works around. You're going to have to do different things with trading. You're going to have to expend more worker time to improve those from the simple, like gathering things, into the ones that will eventually form the corporation.
1: The corporation is an upgrade to an and it uses the Great
0: Merchant. So we will also have other uses for the Great Merchant than sitting there and just getting more trade routes or getting an extra envoy or whatever bonuses.
3: Yeah, some of those merchants are really good, though. It's going to be tough to decide whether you want to use their regular power or build a corporation with them. Like I would have to assume that having a corporation is probably going to be better than increasing my trade route capacity, but it's still like, oh man, improving my trade route capacity is going to is still also a really good thing. Like, yeah, tough decisions.
0: Uh, that's the theme of all the stuff in the Frontier Pass, basically.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, there's some other stuff that was added. We get the preserve building. Which is Hmm. added in the DLC. It's a unique tile or a tile improvement that is unlocked. Wait, was it it
3: an improvement or a district? It's a
1: district. Yeah, yeah, I was under the
3: impression it was a district because you can actually build buildings on it.
1: I sometimes get tile improvement and district used when I'm
3: talking. Okay, fair enough.
1: It grants three housing based on appeal. Culture bombs neutral tiles and has +1 ad- appeal adjacent. Can cannot be built next to the city center. You get to build two buildings in it. There's the Grove, which is +1 food and +1 faith per adjacent unimproved charm- charming tiles. +2 food, +2 faith, +2 culture for adjacent unimproved breathtaking tiles. And then you get the sanctuary, which is unlocked at conservation, plus one science and plus one gold added to the grove's benefits for charming tiles, and plus two science, plus two gold, plus two uh, production to adjacent, unimproved breathtaking tiles. So basically, to me, it looks like it's a completely useless thing, because why would you want Improve
0: tiles.
3: Well, I I guess it's good early in the game before you've had the opportunity to improve those tiles.
0: Or if you're expanding out and you're going into undeveloped country things and you you know you're not going to have time to fully improve those like you might do your core cities or something. Like if you're playing a Terra map and you went to the New World.
1: Yes, I wonder how it interacts with national park thing. Yeah, you'd think there would be
3: a strong interaction there.
1: I use the national parks a lot for land that I don't do anything with because they give a lot of tourism bonus and culture is kind of my most preferred victory type because I don't have to do all the unit micromanaging.
0: Yeah.
3: Well, and it, it sounds like the, uh, the sanctuary or the preserve... Like you would put in the same places that you would have put a national park previously because you want it to be surrounded by, you know, charming and breathtaking tiles. So, uh, but then the the downside is building that in that place would eventually block you from building a national park there, uh, which, you know, may be something that you would rather have at that spot, especially if, like you said, you're going for the tourism victory. And I'm surprised that the uh, in all the yields that you mentioned, I didn't hear you say that the uh, preserve generates any tourism. Like, you'd think that's one of the things it would do late game.
1: It provides a plus one appeal adjacent gas, which is the closest it gets.
3: Yeah, and I, I guess there's stuff later that uh, converts culture to tourism, so I, I guess it would eventually get some from that as well. But...
1: Or it creates tourism from appeal, I think. Yeah. Is that a thing you can do? I think it's a thing.
3: So yeah, it seems like a weird thing. I'm not quite sure where what the use for it would be other than it basically being like an early game national park. And it would be civ specific. I guess the uh Maori are really going to like it.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess it could be good if you have beautiful tiles. Like it's probably good for Australia.
3: Yeah, Australia and Maori would yeah. definitely be two examples of civs that would like this district.
1: But it's a
3: district though, which means it has a population cost. Well, but is it a specialty district? Is it one of the dis is it considered like an engineering district that doesn't have the population cost, like the aqueduct and the dam and the canal?
1: Good question. Does not say.
3: I would have to assume that it does not cost a population, because like I mean Like, just thinking about it, and maybe this is, of course, the wrong way to think about it. We might talk about this more in in the next topic, but uh, you don't have people living in a nature preserve, typically. So why would it require population to build, you know? Good point. But, like I said, that could be just a totally wrong way of thinking about it.
1: I think it's an okay way of thinking about it.
3: Who put realism in my Civ game, dang it.
1: I am try. I have been trying to find that quote from a long time ago. It was on Polycast, I want to say, in the first season, where somebody said that civilization is really good at being a good game, but it is really terrible at being a history game, because everything is basically ripped apart and shoved together in a way that makes no sense historically.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about you know, random collections of civilizations and leaders on procedurally generated maps. I mean, what the heck do you expect?
1: I once saw Civ referred to as a Whiggish view of history, all because progress is inevitable.
3: Yep. Well, and even just the scaling. I mean, like, even on a... You you play a real Earth map, you know, as even a, a country like Russia or america or canada that has all this land area you're still building like five cities you know in the entire uh space so
1: yeah
3: it has, civ was never meant to be a historic simulation you know it always had the the educational element of learning about these leaders and cultures and uh you know military uh history associated with their units but not actually necessarily putting them in practice. If you want to do that, you should probably go be playing paradoxes games.
1: Even then, careful, they're not exactly the most historically accurate either.
3: Or uh, or Total War, or uh, Old World. Remember that
1: time when uh, Finland invaded the Soviet Union and killed, <laughs> like, uh, 200,000 troops by going behind the front line and driving all the way from Moscow to Rostov. Aw, man. Away right now.
3: Is that the hearts of iron?
1: That was something (laughs) that happened. There's an achievement for defeating the Soviet Union as Finland, which, as you can imagine, is quite a tall order. And uh, the Mian team did it by... uh, Basically forcing the Soviets to attack until they had no more equipment and then, you know,
3: took them apart little bit by little bit. I suppose that would be the way to do it.
1: In this thread started by Anon Zane Zanen, whatever. I can't pronounce it. Anon X That makes more sense actually. <clears throat> um, we have a thread called historical concepts translated translated to gameplay and mechanics. What are some gameplay and mechanics that represent history concepts well? Are there any concepts that should be implemented or if already implemented should be better. And uh, this thread had some interesting stuff going on. There was a lot of complaint in the early part of the thread about how Eurocentric Civ, to which I say Eurocentric because it's an American game. Sorry. Yeah, if Civ
0: had been developed like anywhere over in Asia, it would be Asian-centric, and that would be what you would expect.
1: Yeah. Kind of my resistance to revisionist history. Kind of flares its ugly head in this thread because you know we've called it something for hundreds of years. let's keep calling it that because that's what people. Do. But then it kind of devolves into picking on Bethesda because bugs, <laughs> and and then there's some complaint about the barbarian. But the question I wanted to ask was: Is there anything in Civ? That isn't there that should be, or that is there and should be represented differently. And the biggest one that comes to my mind is pandemics. Even though that's I kind was of gonna a, say
0: the same thing because we had that kind plague. of a
1: hot topic right now. But
0: yeah, yeah, because we had the very, health in Civ Four. and if you had unhealthy cities, and there were, I think, a couple of plague events in Civ Four as well. And that's historically there were things like the Black Plague and other things that riddle through civilizations and really cripple them.
3: Yeah, I always felt like the health mechanic in Civ IV was kind of a very underdeveloped, underutilized mechanic though, because it really, A, it didn't really do all that much, because aside from like a couple of random events that you mentioned in the Beyond the Sword expansion, there, the, it didn't trigger plague events, you know, in vanilla Civ IV at least, And that, but the, also just like, it kind of solved its own problem because all it did was stop growth, you know? <laughs> That's what it was designed to do. Yeah, was it was to be a
1: check on growth.
3: Yeah, it was, it was just a check on growth alongside uh, city happiness, and uh, it didn't really do all that much beyond that, other than you know random events popping up. In like I said, the second expansion.
0: As much as we complained about it at the time, we are lacking something like that here. I mean, I guess it's sort of folded into housing in a certain extent because you know, right. like an aqueduct gives you housing, although. In real life, aqueduct gave you fresh water.
3: Yeah, the idea is better. that the the fresh water from the aqueduct gives you the fresh water to sustain more people living yeah. in your your city, thus promoting population growth. So it's just it's it's there, but it's like two levels of abstraction.
1: Yeah, I guess it's kind of abstractly added to the Great Mage's mechanic. Because one could easily argue that a dark age is caused by a pandemic. could One could also argue that a great age that a golden age is caused by a pandemic, because that's kind of how the Renaissance started. A large part of it was because there was less population in Europe because of black death, so they had new ways to get stuff done.
3: Well, but also just, like, trying to figure out why all these people are getting sick and dying, like, helped promote, you know, greater scientific literacy and experimentation. And disapproval of the church, also.
0: Is it demons, or do people just need to wash their hands more?
3: Yeah, the church ain't fixing this. This has been going on for hundreds of years now. Maybe we should uh, science this thing up. The
0: only thing about it being tied with the ages is... I don't know. It's it's still too abstract in that sense. I don't know how I can feel like I'm helping. Perv- if me building an aqueduct isn't going to give me health points, is age points? I don't know. It's just yeah, because the health part of it is still too abstract to really think about that being as the cause of the dark ages or golden ages.
3: Yeah. Well, and the other thing too is the lack of housing in one city in Civ Six does not like spread to other cities. So mm-hmm. uh, again it's 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 so abstract but also abstracted to the point where like you don't have the sort of consequences that you would expect from uh having really unhealthy cities because if you have a really unhealthy city you know, you would expect people to be spreading disease and that disease would be following trade routes and it would be going with military units and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And that's just not at all implemented in Civ 6 and, you know, was implemented a little bit in Civ 4, but, you know, still with like that one level of abstraction. Because I think in Civ 4, having a particularly unhealthy city would like actually reduce the health of nearby cities, Uh, It's too bad uh, Phil had to step away. He probably would be able to answer that.
0: But also, having your unhealthy cities have a trade route to another empire didn't make that other city on the receiving end less healthy. Which, if it was an actual plague-type thing, that would have happened.
3: Yeah, you could hypothetically weaponize it.
0: Yeah, and then you would have people closing their borders to you because they don't want to get it.
1: Has anybody played Rise and Fall Plague? um scenario.
3: I played the Rise and Fall mod for Civ 4, I think, but uh Is that the one you're talking no, about? No, I
1: mean no, the the mod that is part or the, the scenario that's part of Civilization 6 Rise and Oh, okay. No I have not. I haven't either. I wondered I haven't seen how they handle the plague mechanic. I would imagine it would have to be less uh, severe than that because it's not that the same scope of storyline given that the scenario exists only as part of a short time period but however they handle it might be interesting.
3: Yeah, good point. I forgot that even existed.
1: But Rise and Fall of Civilization back in Civ 4 did have an in- plague mechanic.
3: Yeah, I, I lost games. Yeah, I, I lost games because plagues swept through my civilization, like reduced all of my cities to one population.
1: Well, the trick with them was you always whip your cities down to low pop because you were going to lose the population.
3: Yeah. That uh,
1: way you could still get stuff built, and not lose all of
3: yeah, plagues and and just health in general is is something that I do definitely think that uh, Civ Five and Civ Six really dropped the ball on. Uh, it it kind of goes into just the larger lack of having to really manage your empire internally. Uh, and Civ Six is a little bit better in that regard than Civ Five was, but yeah, Civ Five had like almost no empire management stuff at all. It was you you build buildings in your cities and then you stop every now and then to pick a social policy and like that was it. Like at least Civ Six has like the policy cards and uh district placement and stuff like that. Uh but like actually having to keep your population happy and healthy like has just never really been a large focus of the civilization games. Like with maybe Civ 4 being the one exception.
1: Depending how far Civ 7 is in development, which probably development has been since Gathering Storm, I would imagine that the experience with COVID would probably change that.
3: Yeah, it, it very well might.
1: Because it's now a part of the public consciousness that public health is a problem.
3: Right, and considering that uh, uh, the Gathering Storm expansion, you know, took climate change so much more seriously than previous civilization games had uh based largely in part because of its prevalence in the popular culture uh i would not be surprised if we do see some kind of you know substantial health and or disease slash pandemic mechanics implemented in civilization 7 when it you know eventually comes out
1: does anybody have a prediction on when it comes out i say next year
3: I would lean more towards Firaxis doing, like, a different IP and then coming back to Civilization after that, because that kind of was what they did between Civ Five and Civ Six. They did, you know, Beyond Earth for a few years.
0: Yes, they but they also—go ahead. I was going to say, they might even want to do another pass-type thing, because like, the Frontier Pass has worked out really well, as opposed to, you know, the proper full standalone DLC expansion-type thing, and take a little extra time to work on Civ Seven.
1: I was thinking that maybe New Frontiers Pass was the stand-in for a Beyond Earth this time, where... Possibly. Because it's, it's very clear that the amount of people working on Frontier Pass is less than the total amount working on an Expansion Pack. So I suspect the team is already split. In-
3: it's possible.
1: But that's okay, because this worked out fine, but...
0: Yeah, so and they may still they may do a shorter like six month pass or something if they're coming up on Civ Seven's release date just to keep us somewhat entertained until then instead of having that long dry gap like they, we had between Civ Six or Civ Five and Civ Six.
3: Well, the nice thing about Wait. that long period between the Civ releases is you have more of an opportunity to actually, uh, for lack of a better word, finish the, the previous Civ game because one of the problems that I would have with them doing another. You know, season pass, like right up until the release of Civilization Seven, is it be like? Well, no, but I'm still playing Civ Six. I don't want Civ Seven yet.
0: Sure, we we need at least somewhat of a break before it. But you know, just depends on what, what what they're having to go on with their staffing and everything, whether they can fully do it.
1: It also, I guess, depends on what the people voted for in that poll we had.
3: Mm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, in terms of, of like real-world uh, ideas that haven't historically been uh, in Civilization games, one of the big ones for me has been um, the, the idea of like colonialism, like the idea of having to expand to acquire more resources. And I, I feel like that's always been something that Civ hasn't really done particularly well, in large part because you don't really exhaust the resources that you have. So there's very little pressure to acquire more. You know, once you have a couple, like, for example, iron mines in your empire, you don't really need to acquire more iron, right? Because once you've got those iron units built, you don't, you're not even really using it anymore. You just stockpile it and then sell it to other leaders for uh, cash. So there's, there's never really been a huge incentive in the Civilization games to actually go and, uh, you know, explore and expand and colonize new parts of the world in order to get new resources. And I I would like to see the games putting a little bit more pressure on the Civilizations to do that. Um, I
1: disagree with that one because we had resource depletion once and it sucked massively. Did you ever play Civ Three? I did.
3: Not fun oh, when you're resource sword. depleted. <laughs> well, it, it comes back again to, uh, you know, to people complaining about, like, the natural disasters. And, you know, there was... When Gathering Storm was announced, there was the knee-jerk reaction that, oh, no, we don't want more random disasters just destroying stuff like what we had in Civ IV uh, Beyond the Sword. So it, it all comes down to implementation, right? Like, what are the, the strategic you know you have to have strategic play associated with it like the, i'm imagining like a system where like you have the option to you know drive your resources into the ground or you know consume them a little bit more sustainably and then if you do use more of them then you're going to run out you know more quickly and if you use them sustainably then you have them for the entire game but you just don't get as much benefit from them so there'd be trade offs and then if you go with the route of using consuming them uh, you know, it's, it's kind of similar to, like, chopping woods. You know, once you've chopped all the woods around your civilization, you don't have that, that resource anymore. And that's really the only area where I feel like civilization does that. So, you know, you could have, like, a, each resource having a bucket, right? A supply of it. And once you've exhausted it, it's gone. So you know how much is there, and you can strategize around it, and it's not just one turn, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you had Niter, and now you don't have Niter anymore. Because I agree, that's not particularly good strategy game design. But if you actually have some perceivable consequence behind it, and you can plan around it, then I think there's room in the game for something like that.
1: I guess. I just wouldn't like it, I
3: Yeah, and I imagine there's a lot of players who probably wouldn't and and like i said i I think there would just be a lot of knee-jerk reaction because people have bad memories of civ 3 and you know maybe other games where that sort of thing happens
1: civ 3 had a lot of other problems too
3: yeah civ 3 is i think widely regarded as the bad civilization entry i think except by
1: people who don't actually play the game
3: Yeah, it it was the one that I started with, so it got me hooked on Civilization. But you know, to be fair, like Civ Four came out like the next year, so uh, I I got Civ Four and I never had to look back. That's the exact
1: thing that happened. I bought Civ Three and I played it for a while. Never managed to make it to the modern era because I was just a kid. And uh, then Civ Four came out, and I was like, "Hey, this looks better, and it's more fun."
3: Yeah. uh, And it was, and then it I, was.
1: Lost, I lost my mm-hmm. first settler game to Hetapshit Base Race. That was pretty embarrassing. With back on it,
2: I won an accidental culture victory in my first 4 game. Also embarrassing. How could I win culture?
0: <laughs> you of all people, what are you doing? a culture, Phil?
2: Uh, I, I-, I didn't know any better yet.
3: I do have to say though that the uh, the this corporation's mechanic in the Civ 6 Frontiers Pass does look like it goes a little bit of of the way towards uh, addressing what I had just said, where there actually is a gameplay incentive to acquire more of even the same resources. So, you know, it it does give you that, uh, that slight pressure and it does it through, you know, positive reinforcement as opposed to the negative reinforcement of, you know, consuming the stuff you already have.
1: Positive
3: reinforcement is better but another
1: thing that is one thing that is a historical concept that is not put in the and is probably better not is, like, population migration. because Population what? You
3: broke up a little bit.
1: Migration.
2: Yeah, that would be really tilting.
1: That would be like, oh, your population is running away from you because you can't do anything because you have no resources. That sucks. There's nothing you can do about that. Well, that's really fun.
3: That
0: Welcome
3: is one back, of those Kel. cases where, where realism is not too fun. So, yes, uh, Phil, we were just talking about the the thread about uh, real-life historic concepts that are not in Civ. And uh, I think Maki suggested, uh, was it Maki or Canis that suggested pandemics?
0: That was <laughs> mutual suggestion because we both thought of
3: it. Okay, yeah. that, that's why I couldn't remember which of you it was. So, yeah, any, any, uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I, I think that's tough on the timescale of uh Civ. Like to do any type of interaction like that you're always going to have to somewhat gut reality. And I, I think we should fix sieges first. As in they should matter more. But that that's just me. Well,
3: and was there anything else that uh that you think uh is a historical concept that is sorely lacking from the Civ franchise?
2: Hmm. I mean, there are. There's probably a good list of things I could come up with that would maybe not make sense in the context of the uh, six-turn based strategy setup, uh, where you advance a lot of turns per year, and you're forced by the by just the setup of the game's design to abstract to the point where you wouldn't be able to accurately model them anyway. Uh, so it's uh, like I, I would need to really think carefully about how I would add something that the game is lacking rather than just acknowledging that it's lacking. Like a good example of that is supply, For exa- just as just as a one-off example. Like the game more or less doesn't touch on supply very minimally in that you heal more in friendly territory than hostile territory, but that might be good enough. Well, there know, is. Just because of how much it varies by, in actual history, it varies by, you know, what period of warfare we're talking about.
3: There is also the penal- combat penalty from uh having negative strategic resources in uh, Civ 6. Yeah, I guess. That's true. We rarely see it,
2: but it, that is a thing.
3: Hey, if uh if it's accessible, I usually try to, you know, send a uh, mounted unit into enemy territory to pillage their strategic resources in the hopes that uh I can uh cause their other units to have a combat penalty. It's almost that's always a suicide there. mission because of the, you know, bombardment from cities going through, but...
2: Yeah, that's... Can
3: we fix that, please?
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's something that definitely shouldn't be a thing in the game, and uh, is way off-kilter from history.
3: Yeah, the fact that ca- you can't do cavalry raids, <laughs> even though cavalry raids historically were very successful and were used for thousands of years.
2: And the strength of cities without an army is just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. You build a wall, and all of a sudden you, you have the same amount of military power projection as really heavy investment in the army. <laughs> as long as something is somewhat near it, it's ridiculous. And yeah, it does take away the threat of being pillaged, which was a major threat historically. So yeah, I mean that, that's something that you do not implement well.
3: Maybe is we can trade-off? maybe we can solve two birds with one stone and and add some kind of supply mechanic. And the solution to that is to pillage enemy territory, uh, so that there's an incentive to to do that, uh, and then also make uh, make cities weaker so that there's uh, uh, is actually viable to pillage their territory. The problem is, how do you manage supply
2: as the game goes on? Because it was very different in Classical and medieval and then especially in, uh, it, you know, once you get to World War II times, the, the way supply is handled is so different. Yeah. And yet, in Civ Six, supply would probably be the most trivial in World War II times, which is the opposite of history, just because you have tanks that move so quickly that you can just take a city per turn, and then it's your city.
3: Well, just just taking Civ Six mechanics... Like, I have this uh, this idea, you know, and I, I'm just uh, spitballing here, but maybe you attach a trade route to a general, and then the trade route moves back and forth between your territory with the general, and then is therefore open to being pillaged or plundered by the enemy, but and not having that trade route there... Are either having the trade route provides you a bonus for having supply, or not having it provides you a penalty for not having supply, or possibly both. Mm. And then you have something that's that you don't have to micromanage, right, because you just attach it to the general... Uh, and... You'd have to be able to attach it to any unit, I think. Maybe. Or you might have to to switch it off in. Or you would have to change the way the generals work, so that generals are easier to come by and not monopolized by a single civilization, so that only that civilization ever has supply. Um. Yeah. Well, you, like, if you don't attach the supply route
2: to something, then you just can't move your army out of your borders? Like, yeah, you'd have to have some mechanic... For supplying troops outside your borders that don't have a general.
3: Yeah, and Civ Six currently has... uh, It has the supply convoy unit that's available late in the game, uh, which is an upgrade to... uh, What the heck is the earlier version? The medic? And is there something earlier than the medic? I don't think so. So you could do something like that where those units are more important to a successful army. Like a supply train? <laughs> yeah. And maybe, like I said, it, it's maybe instead of it being one of your trade units, maybe it actually is specifically a military convoy unit, but it functions similarly to a trade unit in that it moves back and forth between your army and your cities, and is therefore open to being plundered by uh, the enemy. I mean, it could work. It, it's just one
2: of those things that it feels like you can go too far into the weeds of tactics with a particular mechanical consideration.
3: Yeah. And I also don't think that something like that works particularly well unless you do start changing the scale of the map so that there's more distance between cities and more open terrain. Yeah. Uh, Especially if cities are, you know, blocking movement and doing zone of control and having bombardment. Uh, Again, it's just so impractical to send even a cavalry unit in behind enemy lines to do something like plunder a trade route, even if it is there for the taking, because it's just so easily defended. But then you don't want to go the complete opposite direction, where you have to like leave a defending unit on every single tile <laughs> that the caravan's going to cross over, because you don't because it's too easy to get pillaged.
2: Yeah, and uh, you would also have to have some way of tracing their out, because otherwise the the game's automatic path of supply could be really stupid in some cases. Like, passing through stuff that isn't your civilization, which would make no sense, or pathing through really rough terrain that would be difficult to move into to protect it, which, again, wouldn't make sense, because how their supplies getting through that... Uh, yeah, at the very like, least, n- it should follow roads. Yeah, ideally, but it, like this is the kind of thing that's difficult to get the game to do right, unless you just let the player control it, but now you have another... Uh, Another point of inputs per turn that can go sour. Right. And you'd have to update it all the time.
3: Yeah, and ideally, we don't want even more micromanagement with our armies.
0: That is probably why some of the stuff we've talked about earlier was at more abstracted in Civ 6 and Civ 5, because managing the health was more micromanagement in Civ 4. So.
3: I guess like, th- that was pretty non-interactive, generally, though. Yeah, I mean, it was basically build an aqueduct when it's available, and then build a hospital when it's available, and that's it. It didn't yeah, go much beyond resources. that. Which we're doing in Watch Civ Six it. anyway.
0: Make sure you have diverse resources, that kind of thing, but still.
3: Yeah, just expand more. <laughs> <laughs>
0: just expand more. Yeah, which again goes into
3: the the uh, idea that I talked about, which is you know giving the the player more reason to have to expand and acquire new uh, new resources and materials.
2: I think Civ Six is at a decent place when it comes to uh, attractiveness to expand.
3: It is in that it does not outright punish you for doing so as Sip well, 5 and did. it's
2: it's strictly better. Like you get more stuff when you do it right yeah. but not and, in the, and there are there are some like modest challenges with that as well and it's not in like it's the super, like yeah, it's, attractive
3: it's not in the super cheesy way that like civ 5 vanilla was where like every city generated what was it two science and two gold in the city center uh, so you just plopped a city on every tile that could possibly have a city and then not even worry about building buildings or developing uh population because it was just free uh gold and science
2: well, there was also, like, Empire-wide modifiers that were per city that you could get, like, in Liberty and such. Right. So, just having a city was <laughs> pretty valuable initially.
3: But then Civ 6, over or Civ 5, overcorrected, I think, in the opposite direction, where it was, Alright, I built my fourth city, I am done. <laughs> yep, can't go on, or you won't have any science that so you lose. Right. No wide for
0: you, only tall.
3: And, and even then, like, even when you're conquering, like, you had to raise everything because you didn't want to uh, annex them, and, you know, the client cities kind of sucked. Yeah. So Civ 6 is definitely better in that regard.
2: Yeah, do not miss
3: Civ 5's
2: ham fisted way of blocking civilizations from expanding.
3: Were there any good ideas in the thread?
1: There's a lot of complaining about Europe in
3: the. Oh, yeah. The threat devolves into,
2: like, Eurocentrism, arguing almost immediately. And that's not worth our time.
3: Yeah, uh, kind of on that topic, though, one of the things that I've considered in the past is just, like, different civs from different parts of the world just having their own completely unique tech trees. You know, tech and civic trees.
2: Uh, that's cool, but that is extremely difficult to implement well. and yeah, a design a standpoint.
3: You have, like, examples like where, uh, what was it, the Inca, you know, never invented the wheel, right? They just use pack animals for everything.
2: Like, you might as well be asking uh, Ed Beach to, like, do a one-handed handstand and then do push-ups while upside down. Like,
3: <laughs> Well, again, it's, it's something that other games have done, but it's, you know, they're always games that are on different scales. Like, you go to the Paradox Yeah, there's, games, like, is... three to five of them or something. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, you go to, like, what, Crusader Kings 3 and you have, like, unique... Uh, techs or whatever for each culture. Each religion has its own little upgrade tree.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if you don't change the tech tree that much between civs, like you have a lot of common al- common things, then you could pull that off a little bit more feasibly.
3: Yeah, I'm not saying that like every single tech on the tree has to be unique for each civilization, but you know, like ha- having them in different orders. You know, or having a few unique techs that are unique to that Civ specifically. Yeah. Yeah, that could work. And it would probably be really easy if you just, if if you did have like unique techs in a Civ's tech tree, but they're all like leaf techs, right? So they're not really even prerequisites for anything. I mean, that would probably not be hard at all. Like, it'd basically just be like you stick the unique unit or whatever on a unique tech, you know, hopefully along with some other bonuses. That uh, tie into yeah, but city. now
2: now that's a nerf to that unit because you need to research an extra attack unless it's like freaking amazing.
3: Yeah, maybe. But you know, I'm just, again, just we're just spitballing ideas here.
2: Like I, I like the idea of just a straight up different progression, but it would be I, I, that I, I feel like that would be infeasible to implement in a game of with so many different civilizations.
3: But yeah, which is why I suggest it is a cool idea. Which is why I suggested that it being more like a, a regional thing. Like, so it's not necessarily every civilization has unique tech tree, but civs from different parts of the world would have, you know, their own, you know, kind of cultural variations. And that way, not every civ in the game is following that Eurocentric, you know, tech progression, uh, you know, through the same eras and all that.
2: And then your unit has twenty less strength, and you get stomped. Cause your next unlock is later by too much. Lol.
3: Yeah, I mean, you'd have to move around, like, units and stuff like that and rebalance units so that this different sieves are competitive with each other. You know, like, you wouldn't want, like, China being able to develop gunpowder in the classical era or something like that and suddenly having musketmen two eras before everyone else just because. But, you know, you can have uh, that unlock like their, you know, like a, uh, you know, siege unit or whatever or, or something that is uh, scaled to the that time period of the game.
2: Okay, no yeah. magic. Thank, thank you for joining us in Follycast episode 377 on the VN team, and as usual, is joined by fellow co hosts, Cannis Alvinus.
1: Someday I'll get over this. Makalua.
0: Someday I'll we'll leave dead Air before queues.
3: And Mega Bears fan. Alright, now to dive into my backlog of video games. <sighs> I recommend Greedfall.
0: I I can't even keep up with what I'm doing now.
1: Copyright Civilization... That's not right. Let's try this again. Sound clips from Civilization 4, 3, 5. Beyond Earth, and 6. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.